very briefly, my name is Matthias Knapp. I started Opalesk in 2003. At that time, we were really the first media company focusing on hedge funds and alternative investments, putting out a daily hedge fund newsletter, which we have been doing and producing now every day for over 18 years. I have done probably conducted over hundreds, if not thousands of meetings like this today with um, investment managers, with hedge funds, with allocators. We have a fantastic panel today, and I'm going to introduce them in a minute. We will um, do this every Monday at 10.30 a.m. So please join us. If you want us to send you a reminder, you can just go to opales.com clubhouse and we will automatically send you an email reminder about the upcoming show and tell you who's on. So who is on today? Um, we basically have two camps. One camp is uh, François and Robert. We're still waiting for Robert. I'm sure he will join us. And they are basically the hedge fund camp. So François is the chief executive officer and chief investment officer of KH Capital. There he is in charge of a multi-billion portfolio allocated primarily to hedge funds which invest in private and public markets and risk control strategies. Um, Francois and his team, they have won several awards for performance and risk-adjusted um, performance. He has a PhD in finance. He's a professor of finance at the EdTech Business School in Nice and also a professor at the Swiss Finance Institute. We also have King Oi. He is the CEO of AlphaSwap. He represents then together with Dimitri the second camp. So those are hedge funders that kind of transitioned into the fintech world and we'll hear later from them, you know, why and what the attraction of fintech and what have they learned from hedge funds. We're waiting now for Robert. I will give a brief introduction of Robert later. Um, Dimitri from Horton Point, he runs a family office-based alternative asset management firm where they structure customized investment solutions to fit specific investor objectives. And they also manage an online marketplace of external alternative funds. Uh, Dimitri is also the CEO of DDX Technologies, which develops blockchain-based technology solutions for the due diligence of alternative investments and private assets. Now, he was for 14 years from 92 until 2006, the co-founder and president of Alexandra Investment Management, a multi-strategy firm that specialized in relative value, peak assets of 2 billion. And also King ran a hedge fund. He is the CEO and uh, founder of AlphaSwap. Um, AlphaSwap. He calls the Spotify for investing. We'll hear more about that. Again, he's also a former hedge fund founder, chief investment officer, worked at Goldman Sachs and Fortress. So AlphaSwap, what's that? It's a community-driven platform that enables investment talent to monetize the stock investment ideas and yes. create track records and for investors to access these via a service. So somebody was just saying something. Robert joined, right? Robert, can you hear us? Yeah. So whenever you want to speak, you have to click unmute. Just two things about Robert. Robert is um, in the same camp as Francois, I mentioned, because he is basically still running a hedge funds. Francois is investing in hedge funds and he is a quant. Uh, Robert is an early pioneer of quantitative stock research. He has over 40 years experience with equity analysis using quantitative mechanisms and processes. He produced for over 25 years an annualized return of 20.4% and he seeks high returns by trading a concentrated portfolio of 25 aggressive stocks using his quantitative strategies. I want to start with Francois, right? Francois, let's start with you. You 
um, are also an academic. You have written many books. I, I even reviewed um, one of them or two. Um, but foremost, you are a practitioner, right? So for many years, you have been running multi-billion portfolios and allocating to hedge funds. So I, I thought I'm going to ask you the question, you know, tell us just briefly, you know, your best and your worst experience with hedge funds. Sure. Thank you, Matthias, and thanks for having us. So there's been lots of goods and, and bad experience. I would say the best one is a fund that I, I literally selected or saved, I should say, uh, quite a long time ago, 20 years ago. And over the years became our best allocation, largest allocation, best performing fund, best risk adjusted, I mean, best by all criteria. And it, it's really the sort of you know relationship you develop over 20 years and the returns you get and you've made the right choice. And 20 years later, it, it, it's really confirmed year on year. So for me, that's, that's the best experience I had. The worst experience I had was tiny little allocation we've made to a fund that was a high volatility fund, say a very high volatility fund. We knew it. And basically a one standard deviation translated into a very large loss. And, and this sort of less than 1% allocation turned out to be you know 98% of the team's time took down the whole spirit, all our investors were focused on it, and we were literally suffering for more than a year by you know, having this line item that was losing money. Even though at the end of the year, we redeemed ultimately, the investment impact was almost immaterial, but I would say the sort of impact on the team spirit, moral, and you know, efforts was a complete disaster. These were my two, you know, best and worst experiences. Just quickly, as a follow-up, what what have you changed after that experience? On the good side, really nothing, because I think we've we've done the right thing from A to Z for twenty years, which is pretty unusual. And they've done the right thing on their side for for twenty years as well. On the bad side, and it is a recurring theme, which we. We noticed that things that we really don't want to scale up large at the beginning are usually the ones where we have problems. So we changed the fact that if we're not 100% comfortable with having a larger allocation in something, it's probably not a great idea to have it. You know, this is really interesting because you're now referring to something which we could also call the gut feeling, right? At the same time, right? We're also talking about quantitative investing, about number crunching, right? And you're looking at sharp ratios and all these kinds of things. So how do you match the two domains? On, on our side, we invest in hedge funds. So essentially, we, we apply quantitative techniques to analyze the past performance and try to anticipate the risk expectations that, that we have in the funds we invest into. So quantitative techniques are probably a third of what we apply. We apply also quantitative techniques in building up our portfolio, where we're a bit more in control here. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think if you don't, if you're not sure, even if all the quantitative tools are pointing in one direction and you're not sure that's the right direction, um, you know, we, the, the answer is we shouldn't go. Uh, so I think following blindly a model is a recipe for a disaster. I've always said I like models. I want to know what models are saying, but ultimately models need to be controlled, at least in what we do. There are areas where they shouldn't be controlled, but for what we do, we want to have the last say. Well, this is this is highly fascinating. I just wanted to ask, you know, Dimitri, King, and Robert, do, do you have any any comments or anything to add regarding you know this aspect, the you know, gut feeling when it comes to investing and then you know running those strict um, quant models? Yeah, I guess one thing that Francois just said, just uh, I thought it was very interesting, which is a bit earlier he was saying that. Uh, in the end of the day, if they would not be po be potentially uh, investing at a larger size, experience thought that they probably shouldn't be doing it, as in a small allocation generally should lower conviction. And that's something that it has come time and time again, also from my previous experience as a PM, in that um, it's really the best ideas that drive performance. And there's been a lot of research about this, uh, in that, you know, as a portfolio manager, you're often in a way forced to have a diversified portfolio called 40, 50 or more positions. Most portfolios have, portfolios have that. But what happens in reality is that it's five positions, maybe 10 at most that really drive PL that you start very large and the rest are smaller allocations and therefore typically smaller convictions. 
And, and what happens typically is that those large allocations drive the PL in a positive way, and the rest are very often detractors. And I think, in a way, that's, that's similar to what uh, Francois was saying earlier, in that it's, um, it's, it's if you have a low conviction, you probably shouldn't be doing it in the first place. Um, so that, I thought just to dig into that. And then, away from that, I, I totally agree with that combination of you know gut feel, and we all know that investing in them is, is, is not a science typically. So gut feel analysis uh, combined with more rudimentary risk management overlay is typically what drives it, but it's typically not one or the other that, that, that should be dominant. Dimitri or Robert, anything to add? Yeah, so um, look, we all know that performance is an output of a pretty complex equation right there are multiple uh, parameters that go into this equation that result in what we all get at the end which is performance of a manager uh, coupled with their risk uh, so performance obviously is a function of the strategy of a very specific alpha generation process and all of this but also what a lot of uh, investors kind of either miss or don't pay a lot of attention to is the non-investment component of the of that performance equation, right? So operations, the team, the size uh, of the fund with respect to their capacity and the capacity not so much defined by the manager themselves because sometimes managers get a little bit overly optimistic about their capacity, but really what you deem to be capacity and how far is the manager from that or have they exceeded it? And now they're just uh, gathering assets versus generating alpha. So there are so many different um, things that go into this equation that generate, you know, kind of this one single number, which is, uh, you know, performance at the end of each month. And uh, for each manager, the weight of each one of these parameters is different. So it really becomes a very bespoke process where uh, you really have to look at each manager kind of almost on a case-by-case basis. So there is no apples and apples uh, in this universe from what we found doing this for 30 years. I, I don't know what Francois' experience is. No, I would I would completely agree with you. Operational is is crucial, because, and that's a point that you know we've emphasized for practically since since we started. I don't want to lose money for operational reasons, and partly if you can detect the problem. So I'm happy to sort of take investment risk, uh, but not operational risk. Now, you're, you're absolutely right, which is at the end of the day, people, in my opinion, people that come and apply what I call a template across anything that they see in the market, that doesn't work. Um, you can't look at a statistical arbitrage, high frequency quant fund, the same way you look at an activist or the same way you look at a credit fund or anything like that. So you have a couple of common requirements, but very quickly, most of what you're going to do is, is bespoke to the strategy, bespoke to the manager, and needs to be adapted. And, and I don't believe in the tick-the-box approach that you know, many people use where you, you kind of tick your box, but you haven't done your work, basically. You're covered, but the work is not done. So I, I agree with you. You need to target what you do to the investment and the specifics of the investment you're making. Hey, Robert, any comments from your side? And, you know, following up from Francois and King's comments, you are the one who still runs a hedge fund here. How do you think people should look at you? Or in other words, what do you think as the manager, you know, running your strategy is a proper and professional way to analyze you as a manager and your track record? There are many uh, mistakes that investors make at looking at managers. They rely on all kinds of ratios, uh, price to earnings ratios, price to book, price to sales. Not one of these ratios can tell you anything about stock price direction. We ignore these and we focus on two variables, earnings growth and also new high, uh, new high price patterns. We have found through research that stocks that hit a first new high typically go on to make many more additional new highs in any given year. We have built a data bank on 34,232 stocks over an 18 year period. And uh, we have found that new highs occur in a series and they tend to repeat themselves over time. But it's the earnings growth that drives stock prices. It's not 
P-E ratio. It's not that the equity. And most investors have an aversion to low PEs. But if you look at the recent Merrill Lynch study, they have found that over the past 14 years, uh, that low PE stocks have been underperforming high PE stocks. If you look at uh, Berkshire Hathaway, they have a bias toward low PE stocks. They have a bias toward dividend paying stocks. They have substantially underperformed the market over the last 15 years, following the same precept that the vast majority of investors fall. And that's emphasizing uh, ratios in determining which manager to hire. Robert, you already moved forward right now and uh, explained your strategy, which, which obviously is, is, is very interesting. Now, really following up on that, um, you know, your comments on the stock markets and valuation, right? Many investors regard the stock market as being overvalued based on many yardsticks. How do you feel about this? There are many, many reports that have come out recently using the same ratios that I'm talking about coming to a determination that the market is overvalued. There have been 12 bull markets since World War II, and the average bull market goes up 160% over 60 months. This bull market started on March 23rd in the United States, and the uh, cycle is now 11 months old, and the index is up 70%. I have yet to hear the words bull market in the media I have yet to see the words bull market in print. Most investors today are not really familiar with stock market history. Stock market has been used as a leading indicator now for nearly, it's proven to be a leading indicator for nearly 200 years, starting uh, with the panic of 1837 when it turned down a year in advance. In this cycle, the economy started to create in March. The market peaked in February and the market turned up again in March, about three months before the United States started to experience a vigorous economic recovery that's going on today. Secondly, we are in what I think is a new era of PE valuations, the old norm of applying a 16 PE to the stock market doesn't work. If you look at the way the S&P 500 is constituted today, 33% of the index is comprised by 58 technology stocks that sell at an average PE of 45 times. In order to get back to the old norm of 16 times, which does not apply today, in my opinion, that means that the other 442 stocks have to sell at a PE ratio of zero. That means that IBM is worthless. It means that Walmart is worthless. So I think we are in a new era of PE valuations and the old ways of measuring the stock market no longer apply. Well, this is, this is interesting. Um, what do the other guys on the panel think about, you know, Robert's um, suggestion that we may have entered a new regime regarding evaluating PEs of companies? Yeah, sure. Happy to, to add some color there. I, I, I totally agree. And I think there's probably a number of reasons behind that. Um, one is clearly ultra low interest rates, even though we've seen a bit of a uh, turn there, but we've had ultra low rates for, for many years now. And that's led to a, you know, mathematically a much higher valuation for growth companies where all the earnings are in the future and you discount them at a very low rate. Obviously your, your present value comes up much higher. And, uh, and that, that's clearly applicable to all these technology companies. And I think the litmus test there will be how they will trade once rates are really going higher. And we're, not just 50 basis points, but really higher. So that's, that's one. Um, I think secondly, there's also just, in many cases, a different sentiment, right? And we've seen some of that happening in January with uh, clearly what's been happening with, um, with the, the, the pump stops, including GameStop. Not to turn the whole debate about GameStop again, because I think it's been a bit over-discussed by now. But I think it, it, there, there is a bit of a, a new era where we also see in certain historically you know, fundamentals, called the old-fashioned way of, of investing, doesn't apply anymore. So that whole mantra that at the end of the day, everything will go back to fundamental ratios that sort of quote unquote makes sense. 
by old standards, that is sort of out of the door. And uh, I think we're, we're in a new area where some of the valuations that may have sounded ridiculous, uh, you know, two years ago continue to be maybe even more high. And, and therefore the word ridiculous is is just not there because the market is the market, right? So I think we're, we're in that new era and, and, and therefore also agree with um, a bit more you know, when we say the markets are overvalued, I think it, it just requires more nuance now because we, we've, we've entered some different different areas now. Francois, I saw you flashing the microphone. Do you have a comment? Uh, yeah, a few, a few. Uh, you know, I, I'm always very, um, I would say, amazed when, when I see people say, oh, the old way of, of uh, calculating whatever, the old way of investing no longer works. And, and I've been through so many periods where people said that, and then all of a sudden you've got a crash and a big correction and it works again. So I'm not saying the old way is working is not working. Clearly, Warren Buffett has been underperforming for a variety of reasons. What I think has changed, and here I would rejoin the, the other speakers, is you we have flooded market with liquidity. And I think that's a fundamental problem, which is we have record low interest rates, or we had them until you know a few weeks ago. They're still record low. The real yields are extremely low, have been negative. So technically, I think the valuation of stocks has been driven mostly by the fact that there was no other place to hide. And if you want to buy bonds, I mean, you must be crazy. And, and people that have done it on, on long-term bonds have lost a quarter of their investment in a, in a couple of years. So people rush to buy stocks. And then what do you buy? Well, you buy, you know, whatever is exciting or whatever, you know, or just the market or, you know, just a company because you've heard it on the forum. So that yields uh, valuations that some of them are completely stretched, in my opinion, and some of them are damn cheap. Now, if you have a long term investing view, I think you like those damn cheap companies that nobody likes. Right. And we're back to Warren Buffett. I don't care if I need to hold this for five years or 10 years or 20 years, because I know it's a great company. And, and ultimately, the valuation that I pay today will become you know, clear in, in a couple of years. So again, I'm not against growth stocks. I'm not against high or low P. I agree that P is probably an old tool. You need to factor growth into it. But I think part of the market is overvalued. Part of the market is fairly valued. Part of the market is record cheap. And, and for a long short equity manager, that's a dream environment. Much better than, you know, the market goes up 20% a year and there's nothing to buy in. Or, I mean, you can buy whatever you want. You don't add value, right? But this is exactly my next question, right? How do you see the hedge fund industry actually navigate uh, this environment, right? So, and I also think, Dimitri, you, you wanted to address this question um, regarding the hedge fund landscape and also has it changed a bit also most recently regarding the pandemic, etc. So over to you. Yeah, well, like Francois says, you know, the famous last words in our business is this time it's different, right? So yeah, it, every time it's different, but really history doesn't really, you know, repeat itself, but it really all, almost always rhymes. There are a few themes today that are distinctly different, particularly because of the pandemic and the health crisis. In many other ways, it's not related to pandemic, but it's still relatively new. And of course, hedge funds being probably the most flexible investment instruments, uh, hedge fund managers being relatively free to adjust their portfolios quickly to the new you know, reality, or at least some of them really become a really interesting choice for investors who, who do want to benefit from these dynamics. So just to be clear, uh, or just to kind of summarize maybe some of the main themes that uh, have impacted everyone, especially over the past 12 months. So Fra Francois brought something that's really fundamental, and that is the flooding of the market with essentially free cash. It's not cheap cash, it's free cash. This is not a new uh, phenomenon that has started back in 2008, 2009, and it only has accelerated since then. So every uh, kind of, uh, you, know, you know, government, you know, kind of state banks balance sheet has expanded, you know, dramatically. And that, of course, has driven the, the stock market and the valuations and such. There are other themes that, that have 
played quite an interesting role. So we see a lot of focus on ESG recently, and that both uh, impacts the valuation of ESG companies, as well as the managers that are kind of paying a little more attention and adjusting their strategies uh, a little bit uh, with respect to uh, the focus of large institutional investors on ESG themes, right? So that's that's been something quite interesting. I think the resurrection of long-short equity business in general, which has really been not doing quite well in comparison to the uh, overall stock market for a number of years, I think this is what we are about to see in 2021, particularly the fundamental players, people who are deep experts in valuing companies and understanding uh, what's just behind the, you know, the numbers and have a little bit of a longer term view. Uh, and uh, again, with uh, what my colleagues here have mentioned, with a real significant dispersion of returns and valuation across the board, some companies with negative earnings are worth hundreds of billions of dollars, and some companies that are actually valuable from the fundamental perspective uh, are not valued as such by the market, right? So there is a massive dispersion which creates a pretty significant opportunity for fundamental equity long-short guys. So we think, you know, my team thinks that there's going to be quite a number of interesting plays in that space. And finally, finally, I just wanted to, to, to briefly say, so there is a, this move towards a, a almost a conversion of private equity style of investing and the hedge fund style of investing. And we see this across you know, many funds. So either they run both private equity and hedge funds in parallel under the same umbrella, or they are making their investment decisions within the hedge fund vehicle as if they are a private equity investor. So, so they have a really long-term outlook. They act almost as a partner to, uh, to their investment companies. And that really is an interesting development that we have not seen a lot of uh, over the past decade. D- Dimitri mentioned money losing companies that were overvalued. We looked at the top 10 stocks during uh, 19, 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19. 50 stocks in all with uh, the top 10 year records and 54% of them started their runs when they were losing money. So even though many investors ignore money losing companies, uh, they are a fertile ground for top performing stocks. Yeah, great, absolutely interesting. Um, King, I, I wanted also to bring you back regarding hedge funds, community sentiment, alpha capture. Um, what do you see from your end? Because on your platform, right, the people who are putting the trade ideas on, obviously, um, they they are navigating exactly this environment we were talking about. So, so how are they doing? What do you see? Sure. I mean, just by background, right? Clearly, um, Alpha Capture as a, as a sort of strategy was revolutionized by, by Marshall Weiss, and it's become a broader strategy, which a lot of uh, mainly quant funds employ. So our platform, AlphaSwap, was really inspired by that. Um, and in a nutshell, Alpha Capture, what it does is it gives essentially the sell side a tool to put their, their signals in a system and you as a fund process that data and, uh, and find patterns and find themes and invest on that basis. So what we do is we don't run a fund, to be clear, we're, we're a data company, but we allow analysts uh, globally to pitch their stock ideas on our platform. It's very data rich, so uh, a lot of data points need to be entered by the analysts. Uh, they also vote for each other. And we then sort, score and select the best ideas based on track record and voting and a number of other factors. And uh, what we're seeing is, first of all, the, the, one of the central theses behind our platform is that there's a lot of good talent out there and not necessarily at the big investment banks or the big funds. And we have, therefore, a very healthy mix between biosite professionals, also a lot of former traders and also emerging talent. And, uh, and, and we see that within each category, as you'd sort of expect, actually, is that you see real outperformers and obviously you'll see, see underperformers. But the way we compensate those people is, is really based on performance. So there's a lot of natural selection there. 
So in terms of color, what we're seeing is clearly, uh, you know, the, the, the global pandemic has been in a way a, uh, a, a big sort of uh, push for our platform because people have more time, they're more at home, um, they, uh, yeah, people are just, more, just way more active. So we sort of tripled our, 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 our Alice numbers. So that, that, that's been very exciting to see. And in terms of the idea generation, what is also, what, what we're seeing is that the, the, they really see certain themes, right? That we're catching on very early. So if you think about it from a customer perspective, and again, we, we sort of resell data and ideas to hedge funds, family offices, uh, institutional investors, et cetera. And what, what the value of that is, is that they get to see, well, see an original set of ideas because the sell side itself has become obviously kind of stale post-mitted too, but also they see sentiment, right? So they see how the sentiment is on a certain stock because of voting by the community. They see how, how certain themes filter in, uh, whether it's in, in resource companies or in biotech, et cetera. And they can see the track records of the users and see how, how good they have performed and, and sort of look at them going forward. So those are some of the things we're seeing from our users. But in general, it, it fits into, uh, I think, what we're in, seeing more now in, in the world in that it's uh, the community sentiment is, is, is just very important input for, for also institutional fund managers, as again, we've seen in January. And where we like to branch ourselves is obviously much higher quality than the um, the sort of you know uh, commenting kind of social platforms because in our platform we actually do analysis and and provide valuation and research behind it so that's just a couple of observations from what we're seeing now yes great thank you for that um, Francois taking up you know Dimitri's comments about the private equity and hedge fund styles kind of um, merging together right so you obviously invest into both domains private and public markets. How do you see this um, playing out? Um, is this like a, a tug of war or do they kind of nicely, is there a confluence between what used to be very strictly separated domains, hedge funds doing liquid stuff, right? And private equity, venture capital, right? Uh, private and the deeply illiquid securities. This is this is interesting because I think there was this debate going around probably in 2005 or six about the convergence of private equity and hedge funds. And then 2008 came in and the sort of the convergence disappeared. Uh, many hedge funds became illiquid as a result of the crisis, but that was not the desired feature. What I would say for me is two points. I think hedge funds that have focused on liquid securities Typically, what they've observed in the recent past is a number of disruptors started as private companies, then IPO'd, and we've got multi-billion dollar IPOs, and, and they become a large cap all of a sudden. So unless you monitor this private sector and the sort of future commerce that, are, that have the potential of disturbing a sector or, or anything like that, you're, you're not informed about the liquid part. So we've seen a lot of hedge funds kind of forced to know the sort of illiquid part and at some point maybe investing. There's a number of managers that launch a pre-IPO, you know, late stage financing, particularly in the tech space, et cetera. The, the second area that I've seen is typically the less liquid credit, where hedge funds are trying to do the liquid part, but they can't venture on the less liquid. In private equity, they typically don't look at the return. The return are too low. So it's, you know, piece of debt, sort of three to five years long, too long for hedge fund, too short for private equity. You know, definitely interesting, but kinds of falls between the cracks. And I've seen some, some successful hedge funds on that with a limited demand from investors, because again, at, at a number of investors, it falls between the cracks. They have a private equity team and they say, that's not private equity. And then you've got a hedge fund team that says, that's not hedge fund. And nobody really wants to, to do that. And our experience in it is if it starts, let me call it semi-liquid, and it, it may be very successful because of the lack of demand for these things. Right. There was just a case uh, in the press of a uh, London-based manager who is experience 
substantial outflows because he's involved in a lawsuit, etc. And lo and behold, it's some illiquid stuff that turns up in the portfolio, right? Which then is uh, for the investors a unpleasant surprise. And it reminds us, uh, right, you, you mentioned what, what also happened um, in, in, in 2008. Um, what do you think, Francois, is a, is a proper way for an asset managers really to, to structure their vehicles so to avoid any accidents like that? Well, I, I think um, first and foremost, you need as a manager to be honest with the liquidity of what you're running. There is always something a bit less liquid that is a bit higher return and you know, you'd like to include it, etc., and, and the problem is by going too much in this direction, you end up in far less liquid stuff than, than what you wanted. The, the second point, I, I, I believe, is to basically, when you, when you run liquidity scenario, go for real scenarios. I've seen people that, you know, told me, okay, I, I've got this stock and, you know, it's a bit of liquid. I have like 10, 15 days of trading, but I can get out in 15 days, so that's fine. The problem is in the same trip, you meet six or seven managers and they all have six, uh, they, they all have 15 days of trading. And that's the normal trading, right? In a, in a crisis, we know that trading will shrink and they're all trying to sell the same thing. So I think having a proper liquidity stress scenario, a real stress scenario helps. And then the third, for, for me, at least as an investor, is... I, I have no problem looking at an illiquid investment and saying, okay, it is illiquid. Let's put it in a side pocket, but let's do that from day one. So we do create it. People can you know, opt in or opt out, depending on what they want to do. Um, but it starts illiquid. It's tagged as a liquid. And, and then basically, you know, it shouldn't be all of a sudden side pocketed as a big surprise to people. Uh, in 2008, I mean, we were running uh, a large portfolio on the same principles as we run today. We, we never created any side pocket and we had large redemptions, etc. The whole portfolio, you know, was basically uh, able to, to pay for redemptions in time, no gates, no side pockets, no nothing. So I think having the intellectual honesty of saying this is illiquid, let's tag it as a liquid and maybe only some investors can get into it rather than discreetly boosting the performance of your fund by doing these things. I think that's the recipe for success. I think that's a really excellent advice. Thank you, Francois. Uh, Dimitri King, any, anything to add to that? Also, I want to ask you, do you have a question for the panel before I come up with the next question? I just wanted to give you the chance. Yeah, I, maybe I, I just want to mention back on the topic of private equity and hedge fund kind of uh, not really merging so much, but investors are looking at all sorts of options, both hybrids as well as single straight up open funds, as well as single straight up closed funds and things like that. The marketplace has or our ecosystem has evolved recently and recently maybe just a few years uh, into a lot more liquid space for investors who are uh, investing in illiquid securities, specifically both hedge funds and private equity. So we know that the secondary market uh, in private equity and venture capital funds has really exploded uh, in the past few years. And now virtually any you know, meaningful private equity fund can be bought and sold in a in a secondary market. Obviously, the you know it's still a very inefficient market, so the spreads are quite high. But uh, you know, if one needs liquidity, uh, it essentially can be obtained. So that's a pretty big change, and kind of that brings the liquidity component of private equity funds much closer to the liquidity component of the hedge funds. At the same time, on the hedge fund side, we, for instance, uh, at Horton Point, are uh, developing and about to launch a program that enables hedge fund investors to generate additional buying power from their hedge fund investments. As we all know, you know, if you buy a hedge fund, a dollar of your investment gets you exactly a dollar of a hedge fund pretty much. And that's what you get. So that's not the case, of course, in public markets where, a, where you can use your uh, public stocks uh, 
to generate additional buying power and either lever up or maybe diversify by buying other things. So now uh, this functionality is going to be available for hedge fund investors. So again, liquidity being the biggest kind of real uh, you know, difference between uh, private equity and, and um, you know, hedge fund investments and between hedge fund investments and public uh, in you know equity investments, the liquidity is getting that line is getting more and more blurred. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in the future. But uh, we're we're moving towards more liquidity rather than less liquidity. Yeah. yeah sorry. Just I guess last thing to add to all the sort of I think very good comments on the space is that certainly what I've seen and clear. I was I've been in the credit markets for many years and sort of saw what happened in 08 is that two things one is in general i think given everything that happened in 08 and many you know uh, suspension of redemptions and, and terrible things happening in the hedge fund space a lot of times in, in credit funds actually because of this liquidity mismatch um i think people in general got a lot better with two things with with leverage and with uh, these mismatches i mean clearly not 100 percent, but in general people are much more conscious about it and also both portfolio managers but also allocators um, I think secondly is that what I've certainly seen is that on my side, I've seen a huge boom in private credit, what they call direct lending or private credit or, you know, anything in between. A lot of investors were very interested in these products and we're talking about high single digits kind of returning uh, products and, um, and, and that liquidity premium that always used to be uh, there sort of pre-crisis uh, just disappeared because again low rates so especially speaking to larger allocators in 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 the u.s big pension plans that have essentially a very long uh horizon when it comes to liquidity they'd much prefer a locked up structure of you know five plus years five year reinvestment period sort of seven to ten years overall than having to worry about monthly about, about a quarterly 90 fund or a monthly monthly fund with with uh liquidity because it's one it's it's it just sort of removes the headache of having to look at these monthly numbers and having to incorporate them but also it at least had the whether whether true or not at least the the story was that it would generate fairly stable returns and a fairly high probability of getting these uh called high singles over this seven year period and uh, and i think so so therefore i think this 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 sort of convergence almost between hedge fund on one hand private equity maybe private credit in the middle and the different liquidity structures i think it's been there i think it's going to be very interesting to see again with, with rising rates uh, where the liquidity premium comes back again right does any one of you have a, a question right for the other panelists I have a question that, which is related to the increased liquidity that is perceived in some markets. But it, it seems to me that the hedge funds have been burned, allocators have been burned, and you know I hope they've learned a lesson. Uh, and they're probably more cautious now. Do you think the sort of high yield mutual funds have been burned or burned enough and have learned a lesson? I'm a bit afraid that the lack of liquidity has basically migrated in some of these ETFs, particularly in private credit, but also in high yield in general, where the holders, the natural holders are typically not the right people, you know, don't want to take a lockup. They want daily liquidity on what is technically a distressed security. And, you know, that is, for me, that is a time bomb, just to be clear. I, I don't mind holding a piece of paper for five years if ultimately I get my return, but I don't want to be in a structure with daily liquidity because that doesn't match it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I agree. We've seen some of that last year. I mean, clearly the credit markets in, in themselves are worth whole discussion because we are arguably in the worst economic situation for the last sort of 10, 20 years, maybe even longer, but the credit markets are at an all-time high. You know, US, US high-yield credit is has reached all-time tight levels, you know, two or three weeks ago. So that, that's, that's in itself quite exceptional. So last year, we've clearly had, a, we clearly had a short period of a lot of volatility, rising defaults, and, and, some, and certainly rising implied defaults. And in that period, you, you saw the big U.S. high-yield ETFs making big jumps in terms of redemptions or outflows or other, uh, and therefore forced selling. So that's what happened during a short period of time. I, I think in theory, what you're, what you're describing is definitely there. We just haven't seen it because we haven't seen this this massive fault wave yet. And we haven't seen it for many years. So I think 
the question therefore is if we do see a real rise in the vault environment whether it's going to be this year or next year or somewhere later down the cycle how that how the market's going to act because we've certainly seen that seen a balance i think it's probably more bifurcated now it's between sort of called fast money as a whole wide group and then ETFs with traditional mutual funds is probably losing ground, probably a little bit on, on, on both sides. And, uh, and we've certainly seen interesting situations, especially in larger capital structures, where you know, you're in a restructuring and suddenly you see a big holder being the European Central Bank, right? <laughs> because of their, um, their, their own uh, bond buying program. And then uh, you know, ETFs will typically get out a bit before. You, you, know, you don't see, I haven't seen certainly bonds trading sort of at 50, 60 cents that are then hold, held by, uh, by ETFs. They've, they've gone out before that time. But it certainly exacerbates the, um, the volatility in some of these situations, because clearly these are, as you point out, by nature already less liquid markets. They're you know the market-made markets. They're not on the exchange really, where liquidity happens at least, and uh, and therefore you get a, a large seller with a block. It, it really moves. It really moves markets. So uh, that's that's probably another, as you say, it, it could be a time bomb. But it really depends on on defaults. Anyone else has a question? Otherwise, we'll speak about ESG. No, no let, let's just move then maybe what could be the last topic for today's session, right? And just as a reminder, we're doing this every Monday, 10.30 a.m. This is the Opalesk um, hedge fund talk, alternative investment shows. I'm Matthias Knapp. I've been dealing uh, with hedge funds alternatives for almost 20 years. And um, welcome to our show here on Clubhouse. So Dimitri brought up ESG as uh, one of the trends, which is obviously something that we have all noticed, um, that we have all watched from the very small beginnings to where we are now. Where do you think this trend will end up? Will we all be ESG investors in five years' time? I don't think that's going to be the case. No one, I mean, no particular theme captures all investors with all objectives, right? But clearly, without a question, ESG is becoming, is fast becoming a very important topic and a very important theme for many institutional investors. And of course, fund managers kind of go where the customer wants them to go uh, ultimately, right? So if ESG is not your expertise and you don't kind of trade Stocks, let's say, if you're a you know credit guy, for example, uh, ESG may be a little bit of of less uh, impact and less importance to you. But uh, we know that European institutions, for example, have been far ahead of U.S. institutions in uh, their kind of uh, in integrating ESG in their investment due diligence and manager search. And now U.S. institutions are following. So now ESG seems to be kind of at a tipping point. Right, where it will likely gain a significantly big attraction amongst investors. And therefore, you'll have uh, a lot of managers either starting up thematic ESG products or focusing a lot more on, um, you know, in that space. Of course, uh, on, the, on the underlying company side, right, valuations might be impacted significantly for companies uh, that are ESG compliant. And there are multiple ratings now. You can really open up. I think there are several third-party kind of rating agencies that rate a company with respect to their ESG compliance. So literally, highly rated ESG companies are likely going to get more investor attention and therefore will, will get valued higher. So that will impact how equity fund managers select their portfolios. Other, other comments? Francois? Sure. Um, well, I think the situation today, and I'm, and I'm based in Europe just to, to set the scene, so maybe it's different in the US, but in Europe, unless you have a label ESG on your door, you know, you won't be able to raise money, as simple as this. And so there's a lot of people that put the label, they don't really think about what it means. And there's a lot of investors that want the label, but they don't really check if the label is just a label or if it's applied in practice. And so that gives an unfortunate situation where, you know, again, I would call it tick the ESG box. If you don't tick it, you're out of at least capital raising. I think ESG is, a, by the way, is a good concept. Don't, don't misquote me on that. I'm in favor of ESG, but I think it needs to be thought through a little bit more. And I think there are two aspects in ESG that we look at typically when we look at a manager. One is how is ESG or how are ESG principles applied at the firm? 
and the second one is how are ESG principles, if any, applied at the investments that the firm is making? And for me, these are two completely different answers. And second, the, the my viewpoint on it is ultimately we invest to make money. We don't invest to you know tick an ESG box. So there are things that we want to see, and we've always wanted to see, and we didn't wait for you know, external investors to come and say, hey, you need to take the box ESG. We've done it. We've done it for 20 years. There are things we haven't done for 20 years and we won't do forever. So I think we need to set our own criteria. We need to have our own policies. Policies shouldn't be imposed by people which are not knowing what they invest into. So ultimately, that's the, the manager that needs to set the level of ESG they want to comply with, and there are multiple rating agencies and level of ESGs and, and definitions and screens, et cetera, that you want to apply with some conflicts. And then investors should you know, carefully check them and say, yes, that's what I want, or no, I don't agree with that. So I think we we're, unfortunately, there is a kind of ESG washing, which I'm not sure will add much, except it will simply, you know, allow some people that have a sticker to raise more money than, than others. Right. That was a, uh, another great recommendation. Also, don't only check out the investment policies, but uh, how does the company actually leave ESG? So, sorry, Matthias. Yeah. So yeah. just on that okay. particular point. Yeah. And just sort of to highlight, and this is, I'm just sort of making these points because I think in general, that's a great point from Francois and you generally want to see that more, but at AlphaSwap, that's actually, in that sense, ESG is uh, a, a very core part of our business, right? Because on the E side, as a distributed platform, we have we have no mega office that people travel to and sort of sit together and you know exude CO two. On the S side, we have a very diverse community. Eight percent of our of our contributors are female, which is still a low number, but well below well above the industry average. You know, we have contributors from forty countries. And on the G side, we just pay in a very transparent way, purely based on performance. And, and I'm just saying that because we really took that in when we uh, when we created the platform and some of the principles behind it. Great. Thank you. That uh, makes total sense. Uh, are there any final questions? Otherwise, I would go ahead and um, close this session. But just checking, are there any questions and um, final comments from the panelists? All right. No, it seems like we're done. So um, I want to thank you all for joining, right? Francois, Dimitri, Robert, and King. We had a fantastic panel. Um, very happy to see you, at least your photo here <laughs> on, on, uh, on, on the app, right? We, we have all met um, several times over the years. So this is a great new vehicle. I'm continuing doing this. I'm going to obviously invite you all back. Um, for anyone in the room, I want to thank you for joining in. My name is Matthias Knapp. I started Opalesk, a niche publisher on hedge funds and alternatives, and we'll be back on Monday next week, 10.30 a.m. Eastern, looking at AI and machine learning-based investments. So thank you all. All the best and um, see you back here. Bye-bye. Thanks, Matthias. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. And that was it for today's podcast version of the Alternative Investments Show. Thank you for joining and subscribing to our service. You can always email me at nab at opales.com. Also, if you're interested in joining our show as a guest. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, please write a review to help others discovering the service.